are entering the Freedom Hut. Will we strike at Assad in Syria? Also, the Mueller probe looking for information tied to the Access Hollywood tape. It's getting crazier and crazier. Plus, Paul Ryan not running for re-election. The Speaker of the House is done after this term. We've got that plus a whole lot more coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One more Make Make no mistake. America, you're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everyone. Great to have you here with me. I wanted to lead off with Syria today. I, I, there's a, a whole bunch of other stuff that we've got to get to. The, uh, the Comey World Media Tour. That's going to be both a subject of uh, a lot of discussion and mockery on the show and, and a source of some, some headaches for me, I'm sure, because, oh, Comey. I understand Comey. That's the thing. I, I know, I know the, the, the cloth from which he comes, if you will. I, I understand that kind of sanctimonious bureaucrat, having worked with some very sanctimonious bureaucrats in my day. Uh, but that will have to wait for just a little bit. Plus some stuff coming out of the Mueller probe that, you know, here, here the, the breaking news on CNN. I can always turn the, the anti-Trump resistance as presented by C- the anti-Trump resistance sponsored by CNN. Sources, FBI raid sought Trump's communications with his lawyer, Michael Cohen, regarding the Access Hollywood tape. You know what I see happening here? There's an effort underway to now look into uh, politics as a criminal matter. I don't mean that they're trying to criminalize political differences. That's what the whole Mueller probe is all about. But this is about looking at the ins and outs of what people do in politics and try to find a way to put it into a statute or, or find a statute that applies so they can bring criminal charges. But as I said, that will have to wait uh, that will have to wait a little bit. Um, I- I'm pretty frustrated on the Syria situation. Uh, frustrated for a number of reasons. The, f- the first is that there's a lot that demands our attention more so than uh, than what's going on in Syria on any given day. It's just the truth. And this has been the case for years now. I so rarely see any worthwhile discussion or analysis of Syria, especially on TV, you just have everyone doing a lot of moral preening and posturing over, you know, yeah, Assad's so bad and he's just terrible guy. We we know that. Right? This is not it's not a additive statement. It's not helpful to conversation. Right? It's like it's like people who go on TV and they want to talk about how Putin is a thug. That's right? all everyone says. Thug, Putin's a thug. Okay, well, what is that? What do we do about that? What does that mean? What are the next steps? If the U.S. was to have a more productive relationship with Russia, then we should do what? The following. What is the following? With Syria, I feel like we haven't somehow as a country, and it's at least in the leadership class, it's a it's a bipartisan failing right now. Well, actually, the leadership class, I mean the people that are elected representatives. They seem to have this impulse to flex U.S. military might abroad and make a statement in a part of the world where this is just, it's for show. It's not going to be meaningful. 
And then I also have some questions about all the all the statements and the and the news reports that we accept as fact. But have we not learned the problems of trying to rebuild someone else's country for them or trying to hold it together or trying to stop it from descending into civil war? My generation now, and, and the generation above me, but you know, my generation has been engaged in active combat operations in Iraq and Afghanistan now uh, for over a decade. In the case of Afghanistan, going on two decades now, right? I mean, this is going on for a very long time. We are not about to fix Afghanistan. In fact, Afghanistan is getting worse. Another thing that's not very much reported on in part because nobody wants to hear it. I think really nobody. Uh, if the media can find a way to make it Trump's fault, they will. But Afghanistan is deteriorating. It is getting worse. And we, we don't even want to know how much Iranian and Russian and other influence there is in Afghanistan assisting the Taliban. It, it, it's a nightmare. OK, Iraq right now is quieted down a bit. They've managed to. Avoid the descent into hell that would come from a, an open sectarian conflict between the Sunni, Shia, and Kurd, the three primary ethno-sectarian factions inside of Iraq. So that we've, we've calmed that down. The Islamic State is suppressed there. They're not completely eradicated, but they're suppressed. And now we've got Syria, where no one has a plan that's even worth listening to right now. No one really knows anything other than, you know what? The Assad regime is better than the alternative, but no one wants to say it. They don't want to say it. They don't want that to be. It just feels wrong because Assad's such a bad guy. Because Assad is a is a genocidal dictator, a murderer, all this stuff, which is all, all true. Uh, but what do we really think is going to be accomplished by firing a bunch of missiles into a country with which we are not at war, that we don't even know who we want to to win the war right now in Syria. We really don't. Uh, we don't have a faction that we think could run the country. And we also have a nuclear power, Russia, in this case, that has troops there. And we have U.S. troops in harm's way. All of that together there. And in response to a chemical weapons attack that killed four, uh, over 40 people, made 500 sick was the latest I saw today. We're going to do what exactly? We're going to bomb some airfields? Why? Because we, we have to draw a line at, uh, at the usage of chemical weapons? Uh, there have been plenty of times in our recent past where, by the way, we did not enforce that. And the last time we did this, this is quite obvious, it did not have the intended effect, as in if you believe that Assad used chemical weapons a year ago, somehow, almost exactly a year to the day, he's using chemical weapons now. I also would want to know what the motivation would be for the dictator of Damascus to do this. The regime has, despite all odds, managed to hold on, hold power and hold back the advance of what is primarily a jihadist uprising against him. Now, I know there was a time when it was protest movements and the free Syrian army. And, but the reality is that right now the jihadists are the primary anti-Assad coalition. I'm not just saying, and that, by that I don't just mean the Islamic State. There are all these other factions that are hardline Islamists. And 
the people of Syria that are still in Assad-controlled areas do not want those rebels to take over. They do not want them to be in charge. So our firing off missiles is based upon an emotional response. Uh, I think it was a year ago that the president, the reports were at least that the president was swayed by uh, by his daughter, by Ivanka, to, to enforce the red line that Obama had not enforced. And I, I can understand the symbolism at the time of doing it. And, and I will not pretend I will not rewrite history. I thought that it was the right move at the time under the circumstances. Uh, but we did it. We drew a line. We enforced the line. Now we've started asking the question, OK, well, it clearly didn't deter future be, future bad behavior. So the only way that you could even make a case that in what is now it's being reported as I'm on air, an imminent missile strike, the United States firing off probably a bunch of Tomahawk missiles and, you know, annihilating some airfields, maybe some other military depots of the Assad regime. The only way you could justify it as a military maneuver would be if you went bigger, right? If you went for more here, if this was not just a show of force and a show of uh, accountability against the Assad regime, but it, you're, you're going to really make it hurt. You know, you're going to really hamper Assad capability, which means, esca- this means escalation. This means something a lot bigger. And we don't have enough of a read on what the aftermath of that would look like in Syria. We don't know what would come to with the Assad regime, with the rebels, with it, if we were to go hard and heavy after Assad. And that's why when I heard Lindsey Graham say um, that Assad should be a target, I slapped that down. I think that that's, I think it's a bad idea. I think it's honestly reckless. I think Lindsey Graham has never been impressive to me. I just don't think he's an impressive guy. Maybe he's a really nice guy. I don't know. I think his analysis is pretty crappy most of the time. Um, and I, I think that at some key points as well, he all of a sudden stops being particularly conservative. He's back out there, though. He really wants he wants us to blow some stuff up. He needs to go big because Assad uh, has defied the president. He's defied the international community. He's defied uh, human decency. And now's the time for this guy to pay a heavy, heavy price. And anything short of that, I think, will embolden him and others. Anything short of going big after Assad, right? I mean, isn't uh, what Graham's on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee or the Senate? Uh, which which committee is he on? I don't even know. Let me know if you figure. He's on one of them. He, he fancies himself a foreign policy savant. Uh, go, go big. Anything less than that would embolden him. Oh, okay. So so proportional response to what happened there, which is what they tried the last time, again, almost exactly a year ago. That would make things worse. I, I don't know what world Lindsey Graham is living in. I don't, I don't know what recent U.S. history is informing his decision-making. Uh, but I think that's a terrible idea. I think it's a terrible idea. Look, I mean, people will point to this, and I know they will, General Mattis. And they'll say, well, if you know Mattis, who's very well-respected, and like, I have a lot of respect for the guy, too, but his job is to execute the uh, orders given to him by the commander-in-chief, President Trump who is, I think, still being swayed by people one way or the uh, the other on this issue. I mean, here's what Mattis said about this earlier today. We're still assessing the the intelligence uh, ourselves and our allies. We're still working on this. Is the U.S. military ready right now to conduct a retaliatory strike? We stand ready to provide military options if they're appropriate, uh, as the president determined. 
Yeah, it's up to the president. I hope that Trump just this time around decides that uh, they will condemn it in a statement, but it's just not worth the risk here. We've got we've got a, a larger U.S. troop presence than we did a year ago. The ground truth has changed from what it was a year ago, and we did this once. We enforced the red line once. It didn't stop them. I know there are also people who will say, and I, I am uh, open to the argument, why would Assad even do this? Why would Assad use chemical weapons? He's, he's winning in this part of eastern, it's really the suburb east of Damascus. He's winning in this area. So why use chemical weapons at this point? And, and have the international community that had essentially decided, you know what, we're going to let Assad do his thing, and he's better than the alternative. It's so reckless and so dumb for Assad to do this that it makes me think maybe we're missing something here. And you know me, I don't do conspiracies, although a lot of folks find conspiracies very interesting. But if there were... An opportunity for a false flag op, or rather, if you were looking to do a false flag op, this would be a a compelling one to pull off. Get the whole international community focused to get on Syria. And I, I mean, if you're the jihadists or you're any of these Islamist militias, by the way, people don't you see all these pundits. They have no idea. They don't understand what insurgency is like. They haven't been near this. A lot of these senators, honestly, they just read about this stuff in books. You know, they show up like once a year in the green zone in Iraq and they're like, look at me, I'm tough. I wore a flak jacket for five minutes. The, the truth here is that you have people that are actually going to def- that have been defecting continuously from Assad's forces to the other side. You've had a lot of uh, of, of attrition both ways. So who knows who's got what? We have no idea. People say, oh, Buck, we have great intelligence on the ground. What's going on in Syria? No, we don't. I can tell you that, too. It's a lot that we don't know. So we're going to do what? We're going to fire off a bunch of missiles and cause a whole storm there? What if Russia's saying they're going to shoot them down, by the way? Now we're going to get into that? We're going to get into a, uh, a test of wills with Russia over Syria? Here's another truth that no one wants to tell you. We care a lot less about what's going on in Syria than Russia does. That's just what's going on there. We don't like to say it. We don't like to hear it. But that's, tr- that's truth once again. I don't understand. We, we've had such a rough go of trying to put together a couple of Muslim-majority countries. I'm not even actually Libya, too, right? Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan. We've been going through this and going through this and asking our, our best fellow Americans to do all this actual work, to put their lives on line and suffer casualties and, and PTSD. And we're, we're going to even tempt fate on this again for Syria. I'm sorry. We're, we're too late for Syria. We are, and we shouldn't pretend we're not, and we shouldn't put our men and women in uniform in a position where they can't win this fight, it's not their fight, and they shouldn't be there in the first place. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about the special forces we already have there now. They're assisting ground forces that are, are aligned with our objective, which was to destroy ISIS. I'm talking about if we're going to get rid of Assad, if that's still the plan to get rid of Assad, now you're talking full-scale invasion. Now you're talking about a big military force there. It's a terrible idea. It is a nightmare. We need to learn lessons, and we need to elect people in this country who understand what the heck they're talking about and will look at recent history and draw important conclusions about our national security from it. Do not get us dragged into Syria. All right, hit a quick break here, team. We'll be back with much more. 
I hope that the United States is going to move sufficient forces into the region that the Russians won't do anything foolish. Uh, the fact is, if we mass our power, they can't possibly compete with us in the region. And we need to communicate very clearly to Putin that if the president has made the decision, if his British and French allies have made a decision to go along with him, uh, that we are not going to tolerate any Russian interference and that we have far more power in that area than they do and that if necessary we'll use it. I, I don't think we should allow Putin to have any illusion about trying to bluff us. I think we, we Americans have got to get back to a habit that we're prepared to defend our civilization and defend our country and that means if you come up against some dictator trained by the KGB and he thinks he can bluff all you, right, right. you want to I, 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 I gotta say, that, that, a lot of TV tough guy talk there from Newt, who is a very smart guy and I respect, but he's, he's wrong on this one. Move forces into the region over Syria? Russia's been there for years. Russia has Spetsnaz in place. Russia has intel officers in place in large numbers, my friends. And it's not just Russia. The Iranians are there, too. Iranian IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, they're there. They're working. They are embedded with and working with Assad's forces. What, what does he mean? We're going to show them that, you know, we're in charge in Syria. We're not. And we're not going to be. We are nowhere near as invested as the Russians or the, or, or the uh, Iranians are in what's going on in Syria. Move sufficient forces into the region? I mean, <laughs> to do what exactly? This is what I mean. I, I You know, Newt just fell into it. I'm sure I, that was probably a Fox News uh, segment, I'm guessing. And it sounds good on Fox News. You know, forces in the region confront Russia, show Putin who's boss. What, what do you think has been going on in Syria for the last, oh, six years? They've been there, right? We decided we're going to go after ISIS, but we're going to leave Assad alone. That has been the policy. That is that is the truth of what has happened. Uh, we're not about to decide that that's not the policy. That's a terrible, terrible idea. And we do not want to get into some kind of a, you know, squaring off with, uh, squaring off with the Russians in Syria. We really don't. Um, they will play very dirty and... We just, it's just not our fight. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. I've got to talk to you about the latest on the uh, Mueller probe. This is just, it's outrageous stuff. Um, swamp is thick. And smelly and stanky and bad. It's it keeps getting worse. I, I came into this. I, I know the swamp. I lived in D.C. I worked for the federal government. I got all kinds of friends and, and colleagues in politics. Uh, I know people on both sides of the aisle. Man, the swamp is bad news, but it's even it's even messier and deeper and worse than I thought. That's what we're finding, especially on the government side. Deep state is uh, is a real thing that we have to contend with. But before I move on to all that, we got some calls coming. I want to take them because they want to discuss Syria. Uh, so I wanted to hear from them. And then we'll move on to the next stuff. We've got uh, first Kent in Greensboro, North Carolina. Hey, Kent. Hey, Kent. How you doing? Doing good, Buck. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, 
bad it's a, it's a bad day in uh in North Carolina. Apparently we're going to lose you on the local radio station down here sometime in May, I believe. Oh, that's uh, a shame. That's, that's, bad. that's a, that's a shame. Ba- uh an, an unwise decision, but folks are allowed to make their own decisions. What can I tell you? But anyway, go ahead, Kent. Uh yeah, I I'm calling uh, about this whole Syrian thing and as you were you were discussing earlier that it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever for Assad to use chemical weapons when he's basically won the war and and Trump uh, recently stated that we are going to be pulling our forces out of Syria. It's not logical in any way, and even if that guy's an evil dictator or what have you, he's not a dumb man. He's an eye surgeon who speaks multiple languages and has been groomed to run a country. He's not an idiot. And I read a report today on my lunch break from uh, from Zero Hedge, and while the source, it, it came from a, a public statements made by some made by the Russians, and they had basically stated that. that they sent inspectors in, and they couldn't find anything. And they were basically claiming, I mean, it's a conspiratorial, and put it into context, this is coming from the Russians, so, you know, that needs to be taken into account. But but they were basically claiming that uh, some international, uh, like, health organizations, some, some, I can't remember exactly, they refer to them as white helmets, but people who do international... Yeah, I know them. There's actually uh, a documentary health. on them, sure. Well, anyways, they were saying they were basically creating the conspiracy that uh, these people basically staged the whole thing to create basically the propaganda to keep uh, the United States involved. And while I don't like to get too conspiratorial at times, that does make more sense than Assad doing a chemical weapons attack when everything's going in his favor. And uh, a second point I would like to make is I read uh, more of a mainstream news article. I went and tried to find some mainstream news articles to see what they were talking about. And there was an individual from one of these organizations who was quoted as saying that he smelt chlorine after uh, some barrel bombs were dropped. And, and two quick points about that. Chlorine gas, whenever it was used in World War One, it was, it, was it was a byproduct that the Germans had from, the, from, I believe it was the dye industry. Don't quote me on that. But basically, they did not use it in explosives. They kept it in canisters, waited for the wind to be blowing in the right direction. They opened up these canisters, and then there was this big green cloud that came in the trenches of the enemy. And I recall one time, I spent some time in the military, and I was talking with an EOD guy who they, they know a thing or two about explosives. And he was saying that chlorine cannot be used effectively in explosives, but and it had something to do with the heat. Yeah, a lot of it burns off. I mean, the, some of the bad guys in Iraq and, and Syria have been trying to use chlorine bombs for a while. They did it in Anbar province years and years ago, I remember, for the first time. But, but basically the entire thing, it, I, it, it smells extremely fishy. And while, you know, I want to be hesitant to believe, you know, uh, a conspiracy that is created by some, some guy from Russia, so, you know, part of the Russian government, it is more logical than what our media is saying, and I don't know. I'd, I'd just like to know what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, well, I'm trying to touch on a lot of the subject matter that, that you're bringing to the forefront here, uh, Kent. I would just say that the timing is very suspicious, very strange, that there's been a, a pretty much an acceptance of a, if not a U.S. withdrawal entirely from Syria. I mean, the president himself was like, yeah, we got to get out of Syria. He's right on that, you know. We, we, we can't get pulled deeper into Syria. It's, it's going to go nowhere good, and we're going to lose our people. It's, uh, it's going to be very, very messy for years to come. And, and the notion that Assad would use, why would Assad use chemical weapons to kill 40 people? Why would he do it? 
It doesn't make any sense. He can kill people with barrel bombs, artillery. He's got his uh, Shabiha militia going in there, killing people all the time. I mean, why do that? It's just it, for the fear factor. I, I, it creates much bigger. This strike, assuming Assad's people did this, using that chemical weapon is militarily is counterproductive even from the perspective of a homicidal maniac who doesn't care about killing children, right? Like, it doesn't matter whether Assad is the most immoral guy on the planet or not. Using those chemical weapons now puts him in the crosshairs of the only global superpower, which is us. So it seems very odd. I'm not saying he didn't. I'm just saying it's wor- it is worth questioning this, um, and it, especially because he did it last time we hit him, so now they're going to do it again now? Why would they do that? You know, I, I, I'm I'm all in favor of, of, of you know, accepting how, and thank you for calling in, Kent, accepting as evil as the enemy is uh, based on their own statements. I don't think that we should try to explain away their evil or find some way to think they're less evil. But I also don't think that they're completely um, idiotic and self-defeating at all of their actions. They've managed to hang on. People forget now. In 2012, there were uh, there were suicide bombings that were d- directly targeted at Assad himself. They almost took him out. They had penetrated his inner circle. Uh, it, it was real close to all. It was close to lights out for the Assad regime. It really was. And everyone thought, oh, my gosh, the rebels and the ISIS and the rising. Uh, nope. They hung on. Never lost control of Damascus. Uh, never lost control of the coastal areas. And they've managed it. They've done it through sheer brutality and, and viciousness, but they know what they're doing. Uh, they also did it because of an enormous influx of help from Russia and, and Iran. But the time, see, this is what, and now this just sounds like I'm criticizing Obama, but this is true. The time to take a bigger role in Syria was five years ago, if we wanted to do that. But now, uh, this is showing up. You know, this would be like showing up at the at the end of a of a surgery where someone's, you know, fighting for for his life and saying, yeah, well, you know, I'm a trained surgeon. Let me see if I can do something when the person's already flatlined and they've been they've been operating for 10 hours. I mean, maybe you can come in and, and revive them and save them and everything else. But the surgical team that's been there has been running things for hours and the patient's already flatlining. That's what we're dealing with in Syria. It is too little too late. And what I'm worried about is that the Lindsey Graham's of the world are out there making it sound like, well, it may be too late, but it won't be too little if we do a lot, if we go big. No, let's not go big. I, you know, I do not want you know, those. Who are, I know we've got a lot of military families listening to this show, a lot of active and, and uh, former military listening to the show. I, I don't want any of you having to go over there on orders and try to piece back together Syria. We've done enough of this. We, we really have um, it's and, and I would also note that I, I don't forget that in the in the post 9-11 era, you know, the, the world, particularly the Muslim world, is very much taking an attitude of, oh, you know, look what America's done in Iraq. Look what it's done in Afghanistan. Not a lot. Of, not a lot of gratitude. Not let's just be honest about it. Not a lot of gratitude from uh, the Muslim world in the Middle East for getting rid of dictators, fighting back the Taliban. Nope. A lot of, oh, it's neo-colonialism, it's imperialism. So, all right, let's let's let other, you know, let, let's let countries figure out their own affairs as much as we can. 
And we're already doing stuff in Syria. And I don't I don't disagree with some of our actions in Syria with regard to the airstrikes against. But ISIS was a threat to us. ISIS had cells set up specifically to come after us. Okay, when people in Syria are training operatives to come to my hometown or your hometown, but they definitely were trying to come after New York City and blow up the subways or run us over with cars or whatever it was. It's now it's now it is our problem. We got to deal with it. Right. We dealt with that. Assad is not trying to send operatives into New York City to blow up the subway to to kill as many of our people as possible. So you know what? Not our problem. We've tried this. We're going to, you know, or, or there'll be a flowering of democracy. And Nope. No, what ends up happening is the Islamists take over. We look like the big bad meanies because we're trying to, you know, get the lights on and clean up the sewage on the streets. And, you know, we're the, we're the, the, the terrible occupier that is America. And we've had a... a, a the ability of the United States military that has been shown both to defeat the enemy and to adapt and do incredible things that are well outside the, the what you think of as the standard warfighter uh, toolkit. I mean, you know, building schools, building sewage, but doing all these things, these countries, and it's just enough. I, I wouldn't look. I wouldn't go over there, and so I wouldn't ask anyone else to go over there. And I've been over to Iraq and Afghanistan, as you know. I wouldn't I wouldn't want to go over to Syria right now and try to rebuild it. Right. It's different if I were a high speed SF guy or something. And I was working with the Kurds. That's cool. And they're doing a great job. But I'm not about to show up over there. So I'm not about to say that everyone else should go over there and try to piece that place back together. We got our own problems here. We got our own things to worry about. Uh, let's take Tim in Tuscarawas, Ohio. Did I get that right, Tim? Yeah, you betcha, Buck. Hey, I've been on there before. You know it. Listen, number one, I hope the president understands that when Lindsey Graham and the GOP neocons who hate the president, along with the Dems and the mainstream media, all are urging him to take action, there just may be a problem with that, right? Okay, that's number one point. Number two, I'm glad Ken brought up those white helmets, because I'll tell you what, we've seen before where those guys have staged uh, terrible events, and then at the end, when the victims are all standing up, hugging, and having pics with uh, the rescuers, there's something wrong with that. Also, they're helping these radicals, okay, who want to overthrow Assad. And we know that they've taken over control of some of the warehouses that the Syrian uh, military had. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they've taken over some of their warehouses and stockholds of also chemical weapons. So if there are, we don't know that they ain't just releasing them to show that there's evidence there, but not that Assad used them. Like you said, it would be stupid on his part. But, you know, the president said, we're not going in there to fight Syria. We're going in there to fight ISIS. And we send in our special forces. They hook up with the Kurds. And... Uh, they're just about done with ISIS. We don't need this war with with Syria and Russia. We need to help the Kurds. They've taken in Jews in the area. They've taken in the oldest group of Christians, the Coptics, who in turn are helping them fight against the, the radicals in the area. We should support the Kurds. But I'll tell you what, the president, I think, knows this, but he has got to understand, man, when you've got all your enemies urging you on to do this, it's a big setup. If yeah, it, it, there there are some red flags here. Tim, I appreciate the call. Thank you for the ring. Uh, 
there there are big there are some big issues here. I, I also like that our caller brought up uh, the Kurds because I've been coming on this show saying, guys, the Kurds are getting they're getting shelled, they're getting attacked by the Turks, supposedly our allies. The Turks are just lying their faces off about how they're all terror. They're not all terrorists. They're not all PKK. That's that's malarkey. But, you know, we don't want to deal with the, oh, now we got a crisis with the Turks and how are we going to handle it? The Turks have been very unhelpful. By the way, we wouldn't be dealing with an ISIS if it wasn't for Turkey saying, yeah, we'll just open our southern border and let all the crazies run across it, which is what happened. Turkey was the gateway for all the foreign fighters to get into Syria. They could have done a lot more to stop that. So uh, Turkey's been a problem, and, and the Kurds deserve a lot more of our attention and support than they have been getting. Uh, they have been honorable allies of the United States in Iraq and in Syria, and we owe them a lot more than we've been giving them recently, I can tell you that. And it, it is troubling. It's upsetting. Uh, I, I do need to talk to you about the Mueller probe. I, I thought we had a Comey soundbite we could play from his interview, but when is that with, with, uh, with, with you know, the— you know, the guy who can't ride the amusement park rides because he's, what's his, uh, Stephanopoulos. Too mean? No, I'm just kidding. I saw him once. He's petite. He's petite. It's okay, you know? He's got big hair. I respect the hair. Uh, but he does a, uh, he does an interview with uh, with Comey, but it comes out when, when Producer Mike? Do we know? I believe it's Sunday night. Oh, so- we got to wait till Sunday? For sanctimonious Comey? Darn it. All right, 844-900-2825, Mueller Probe, and much more coming up. Stay with me. I worry about a world where when you go from violent groups to hate speech in a hurry in one of your responses to one of the opening questions, um, you may decide or Facebook may decide it needs to police a whole bunch of speech um, that I think America might be better off not having policed by one company that has a really big and powerful platform. Can you define hate speech? Senator, I think that this is a really hard question, and I think it's one of the reasons why we struggle with it. There are certain definitions that that we that we have around, um, you know, calling for for violence or um, let's just agree on that. There are some really passionately held views about the abortion issue on this panel today. Can you imagine a world uh, where you might decide that pro-lifers are prohibited from speaking about their abortion views on your content on your platform? I certainly would not want that to be the case. But it, it might really be unsettling to people who've had an abortion to have an open debate about that, wouldn't it? It might be, but I don't think that that would, uh, would fit any of the definitions of, of, of what we have. Very important questions getting asked today. That was Senator Ben Sass uh, posing to CEO of Facebook uh, or Le Facebook, if you are in France. Uh, what is hate speech? And sure enough, doesn't really know. They want to ban it. They want to make sure it doesn't get on their platform. But what is hate speech? I know that the, Facebook is taking a different position than some of the other social media giants here because Facebook is essentially saying that they are taking some responsibility for the content that goes up on their website. And Twitter and uh, others are like, well... We'll take stuff down, but you know, we can't stop people, right? We can't do a. It's not like a pre. What was the movie with pre-crime? I never even saw it. Maybe I should, is it worth seeing Tom Cruise where they do the? You know what I'm talking about? They stop the crimes before they happen. I forget what that was. 
What was it? Come on, guys. We're on live radio. What's it called? The thing. People are all across the country. Minority Report. Right now. What? Minority Report. Thank you. For those of you who are yelling in your car or wherever you are, I'm sorry that it took us a moment there. Uh, but the truth is, they don't know what hate speech is, but they're going to try. And I got news for you. If you have a pro-life Facebook group that's a little too honest about what really goes on in Planned Parenthood and abortion clinics, uh, you might just all of a sudden find yourself either shadow banned or just outright banned. That's what government regulation is going to allow. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Mueller and the FBI and the DOJ, uh, they don't care about probable cause, and they can always find a judge to give them a warrant. This is all about trying to get something on Cohen so they can say, you're looking alive for a thousand years. I've seen them do it before. And you just need to tell us, true or not, that Trump did something, some crime, and then you won't be looking at an ending prison system. They will do it. Mueller is corrupt enough, and people have got to come to the, right. to the realization Mueller is not an honest, honorable man. The, he is out to get his people yes. that he doesn't like, and he will do anything to bring them down. So I that's what this is about. about. The president certainly has been clear that he has a very deep concern about the direction that the special counsel and other investigations have taken. Uh, this investigation started off as Russia collusion, of which there was none. Uh, that has been very clear that nothing has come up over the last year, and the president has spoken at length on this topic. While the media continues to focus on this, despite the fact that there's been no evidence after a year, we're going to continue to stay focused on the issue. Peter Strzok and Lisa Page are enemies of President Trump. They were spending time at work trying to figure out how to keep him from being president, and if he were president, trying to have some sort of insurance policy to, I guess, prevent him from acting as president. And so we asked the question of the FBI director, do they still have top secret clearance? Can they search databases unrestricted without a warrant? And the answer we got was sort of a non-answer, but it's an interesting non-answer because they said all FBI agents have top secret clearance and must keep that. So if they're still FBI agents, which apparently they are, he means the the non-answer specifically really is an answer. And it says that they can search our databases. And our point is a broader one here. We're concerned right. whether you don't like Trump or you don't like the Democrats. If you work for the FBI, you should have the oversight of a judge so you can't willy-nilly search, you know, an enemies list that you might have right. at work. The special counsel, and welcome to hour two of the Buck Sexton Show, my friends. The special counsel situation, it, the whole thing is an embarrassment. It's a farce, although it's a, also a very destructive and dangerous thing, so we can't just laugh about it, but uh, it's gone way beyond way beyond uh, what any reasonable person could think under the circumstances was ethical, allowable, necessary. Uh, This is completely out of control. And as I've been saying to you, the Democrats that I uh, Democrats I know are like, yeah, it's it's unfair. It's terrible. But, you know, it's hurting Trump. So they're okay with it. It's always so disappointing to see how quickly the left will uh, not just abandon principles, but admit they don't even have any principles. Just about power. It's about any anything to win, anything to be able to bend the other side to your will and to the will of the state. Uh, but there's some very important points come up recently about all this, so the Cohen seizure. We'll talk about that in just a moment. 
but here's the latest. And I we're going to chew on this one together for a moment because most of the time I read something and I'm like, oh, I just, I'm getting flashes of, of what I want to tell you and what I think matters, what's important. This one we're just going to kind of marinate in together for a moment, all right? Courtesy of the hashtag resistance center, that is CNN, right? This is their piece. Their, their main story right now, FBI sought Trump's communications with his personal lawyer regarding Russia collusion investigation. Oh, no, just kidding. That's not what it says. It says FBI sought Trump's communications with his personal lawyer regarding Access Hollywood. I kid you not this time. That's, re- that's real. That is what the F... So, so let's just step back. The FBI went into... They, they made attorney-client privilege a joke... I remember we had Andy McCarthy on yesterday. Who's he? He calls balls and strikes. He's very fair-minded. He's fair-minded to Mueller. He knows some of these guys. He knows Comey, so he tends to be a little nicer to them than I am because he likes them as people or knows them as people at least. Whereas I'm just like these guys are these guys are dangerous clowns. Uh, but I asked him. Remember, I said, "Well, you know, it reminds me of how there's a First Amendment that protects journalists, just like it protects all citizens." And you could, whenever there's a leak, just pull all the phones of all the journalists and you'd find out really fast whatever the leak is. But that's you don't do that because there's a tension there. He said, yeah, that's that's right. That's true. It's the same thing with attorney client privilege. You can override it, but you better have a darn good reason to do that. You better. And and I'm telling you right now, they don't have one for this. I, I don't know if I brought this up with you, but technically. You know, technically, the president can just drone somebody without trial, according to the Obama administration, at least. So a U.S. citizen without trial. So, you know. There's really no such thing as legal protections under certain circumstances. The government's just going to do what it's going to do if you take that point of view. Uh, you know, There's always some extreme circumstance that will allow them to trample on whatever rights. So if we're not going to protect these rights, they're meaningless. And if we're not going to say, hold on a second attorney-client privilege has to be considered meaningful and has to be protected, then uh, we, we, we are fundamentally damaging the justice system in this country in a, in a way that we will not be able to undo uh, once it happens. But so, but so here's the CNN piece, okay? I told you this is about FBI wanted communications between Cohen and Trump that had to do with the Access Hollywood tape. Quote, FBI agents who raided the home office and hotel of Donald Trump's personal lawyer sought communications that Trump had with attorney Michael Cohen and others regarding the infamous Access Hollywood tape that captured Trump making lewd remarks about women a month before the election, according to sources familiar with the matter. The Warren's specific reference to Trump is the first known direct mention of the president in a search warrant, and sources said it appeared in connection with Access Hollywood. And this is the part that I said we're going to have to just, Team Buck's going to have to crowdsource this one for a second here. What the heck do they need anything having to do with the Access Hollywood tape? I mean, you know, I can fill in the blanks too, right? But let's do this together for a moment. Uh, okay, so maybe Cohen... Maybe Cohen made an effort to suppress the tape. Maybe he reached out and said, hey, you know, NBC or the Washington Post, the ones that actually originally ran with it. 
Maybe he said, hey, you know, you, you guys, uh, please don't do that or don't whatever it may be. Right. Went through some efforts. Worst case basis, although I can't imagine Cohen saying this to the Washington Post, but, you know, how much? Hey, how much? No, no access Hollywood tape. How much? That's not some huge crime against the state. Maybe they're going to say it's a uh, a federal election committee violation or commission violation. But the warrant is the first indication, here, according to CNN, that investigators sus- suspect there was any effort to suppress the tape. Can we just all all to take a moment here? What a joke this whole thing has turned into. You have a special counsel who is looking into communication surrounding a tape where Trump was talking about how he likes to be sexually aggressive toward women and, you know, a, a little bit of locker room talk, you know, not the stuff you'd want to say in front of your in front of your mom or your daughter. But, uh, you know, that's what this is all about now. The Access Hollywood tape has become a part of the special counsel. We have a multi-million dollar crack team of ferocious prosecutors. And they're looking for information about a what was really just an October surprise that, you know, that that the uh, media was hoping would cost Trump the election. And I would also note they had no problem just just deep sixing Billy Bush's career over that one, too. You know, I'm sorry. Got to ruin your life, but if it hurts Trump, that's their attitude about everything, though. If it shreds the Constitution, but it hurts Trump, it's fine. If it destroys due process, but it hurts Trump, it's fine. If it shows that we have no morals, no ethics, no sense of fair play or good faith, but it, it hurts Trump, you know, you can fill in the blank. This is where we are now. At least the Dersh is out there making the case and trying to tell folks that this is not this is not OK. It's not the way it's, it's supposed to be. What we're seeing is a bifurcation of the investigation. I think Mueller has now acknowledged that he doesn't have the authority to look into uh, Mr. Donald Trump's pre-presidential activities. And so he's filtered that off and given that to the Southern District of New York, which is now going to investigate those aspects because apparently they couldn't find anything substantial when it comes to the president's exercise of his Article II authority. The president had the right to fire a Comey. He had the right to determine what was to be investigated. He would have the right to pardon, though I don't think it would be a wise thing to do at this time. But they're now moving some of the case over to the Southern District to look into some other matters regarding his lawyer, his private activities, uh, some negotiated settlements. That seems like a subterfuge by which Mueller seems, yeah. uh, t- doesn't have the authority, so he gives it to somebody else, gives them the information. It's like laundering information to another prosecutorial you know, authority. Laundering information to a prosecutorial authority, Professor Dershowitz says there. Why would any special counsel do that unless they had a vendetta against the person who's a subject of the investigation? Keep in mind, and, and I do think this, is, this needs to be brought up, the special counsel's uh, authority and the special counsel's basis is not to investigate Donald Trump. I, I feel like we've just been, uh, the media has been trying to brainwash us or just create a climate where we all accept that this has just turned into an, an endless investigation of the sitting president by federal prosecutors. That's actually not what they were authorized to do. They're authorized to look into 
Russian interference in the election. That is their authorization. It is not just to investigate Trump and anyone who's ever talked to him. I would also note that you know you you take this to the absurd lengths of what is possible, and then you understand better why people like me get so angry about these arguments. Like, well, they're allowed to do this. Well, yeah, you, you know, t- technically, a a prosecutor could keep coming up with theory after theory of why they have to keep investigating you once they've opened a case, right? Well, we have to look at this. We have to look at that. We have to look at... They can drag this out for really as long as they want. Even easier. Why aren't people more upset, by the way, about tax week, producer Mike? I don't understand. I'm ready to take boxes of of tea that I haven't paid the proper, you know, excise taxes on or whatever and throw them in the harbor. I do it in Philly. I do it in Boston. I do it here in New York. I'm very upset about this whole tax situation. People don't get upset about it, though, now. They're like, yeah, we're all just like bleeding sheep walking around, paying our taxes, paying our taxes. I had had a discussion with a friend recently. I said, you know, she's all she's like, oh, I'm getting back my refund. No, you want to talk about Nancy Pelosi's crumbs, your refund, my friends. Those are the crumbs. Because it was your cake. That they've already taken. They're just giving you back the crumbs. Where's Pelosi when we need her? Yeah, busy making cake somewhere else. <sighs> People should be much more upset about the tax situation there. But the IRS could basically investigate you forever. I know I could probably have an IRS, former IRS person call in or whatever and say, no, no, Buck, we can't. I, I, I know stories. They basically can. Okay, they can just keep it going. You need to see this year's receipts and that year and this year and that year. They go back for seven years. How long do you think that'll take if they wanted to? These people were saying, oh, well, Mueller has the authority to do this. Uh, You know, if you have someone who's a who's acting in bad faith and using the power that's given them by the state in bad faith, your protections are a lot flimsier than you think they are. It's not that hard to get. to get warrants for all kinds of stuff and to look at it and then to look, we're talking about a world in which a, an opposition document that you or I could have written basically ended up being the basis for a FISA warrant against a presidential campaign during a U.S. election. (laughs) This is the world that we live in now, but they're all, Oh, you know, we're going to let's look at what the, what the communications with stormy Daniels were like. Or now the Access Hollywood tape. Like I said, there's really no middle ground. You're either in the bunker with Trump, you're either in the in the Trump trench, or you're part of the hashtag resistance at this point. Or you can just be completely, you don't care about it, and you know you live off the grid and whatever. But there's not a middle ground in this political debate right now because people are just absolutely, positively dedicated to ending this presidency any way that they can. And uh, it's it's really a shame. You know, th- there's a list of people that if I ever got the opportunity in a public forum, uh, I, w- I would really verbally, obviously, but I'd really go after them. Uh, and and there are a bunch a bunch of them are prosecutors. I'll be honest with you. A bunch of them are high profile prosecutors because I think they I think that prosecutors who are politicized, uh, particularly federal, but any prosecutors politicized and acting unethically are the single most dangerous government official to any American. So that's why, you know, Patrick Fitzgerald and Comey and Mueller and uh, I'd like to have a real a real robust public exchange of thoughts with some of these folks about how they ruin lives and they do so with a smile on their face because they're just 
partisan hitmen. That's what they're doing, taking people out, taking them off the par- off the political field of battle, and that's what's motivating all this stuff with Trump. I mean, come on, everyone. The Access Hollywood tape, this is just a complete joke. That is not funny. Uh, we've got a lot more coming up. I will uh, tell you about it after this break. Oh, we, we, oh, Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan is going to become a P90X instructor. You hear that? I just made that up, but that's actually a great rumor. I think we should go with that. Uh, he's not going to be Speaker of the House after this fall, though. So maybe he will, I earn this. Isn't that isn't that P90X? We wear the T-shirt that's like, I earned this. Because you're like ripped. I've never earned it, so I don't know what I'm talking about. But I'm pretty, you know, you guys, play, you watch infomercials. Don't make me be the weird one. I'll see. We'll see who has a sham wow in here. Oh, we're going to run into a break. I got to go. Be back. First, though, Global Verification Network, my friends, need to have the best information possible for your business, and that's where Global Verification comes in. They are a background investigation and vetting company that is federally certified as a veteran-owned small business. Their headquarters are here in Chicago, but they can work with you whether you're a startup or a Fortune 100 country. They will tailor their work to your needs. No data or client information is ever offshored, and all employees located throughout the United States. Go to mygvn.com, that's mygvn.com, or call 877-695-1179, that's 877-695-1179, mygvn.com, and tell them you heard about him on the Buck Sexton Show. Uh, the, the CEO, Mark Buckman, is a great guy, his whole team is first class. Check him out, mygvn.com. The president clearly has the constitutional power to fire him. I think it would be an enormous mistake. I think he's far better off uh, to let Mueller continue to be frustrated. The truth is Mueller's produced nothing about President Trump and Russia. If you just look at what his original assignment was, it is a bust. It's an absurdity. And instead, they've gone off trying to find ways uh, to create noise. But in terms of what he was originally asked to look into, uh, Robert Mueller's come up with a big, fat zero uh, and we ought to be honest about that. The president ought to relax, focus on being president. Uh, don't worry about Mueller. He's going to go away. Uh, and in the end, this is going to turn out to be a great deal of noise about nothing. So I disagreed with Newt before I told you that. But here I am actually bringing Newt back on in soundbite form to agree with him. Yeah, former Speaker of the House. I think he's right. I, I think that uh, sacking. I know sometimes I get a little antsy about this one. I'm like, you know what? It would be too much fun to bathe in liberal tears. Fire him. Fire Mueller. But uh, fire Mueller, fire Rosenstein. You know, it, It's probably not a good idea at this point. I know, I know. You could yell at me, throw some tomatoes at me. I, I don't think that it's uh, the right move at this at this juncture, at this stage. Um, maybe Ro- may, I could be persuaded on Rosenstein, but not on, not on Mueller. And I also have to note, isn't it fascinating when people who are think of themselves as constitutional scholars and lawyers, and they know this stuff, disagree on, can the president fire Mueller? You'll read different analysis of this, right? You've seen, right? People say, oh, he can't. These people say, oh, he can. Isn't this kind of a go, no-go thing? Shouldn't we be aware of whether or not Mueller is fireable by the president of the United States? How can this be sort of a, eh, you know, not really sure. But then again, can the president fight a war in Syria without asking Congress, or can he blow up everything in Syria that's in Congress? People say yes. People say no. So I guess there's a lot of uncertainty. It doesn't really 
doesn't really inspire a lot of confidence in uh, our, our system these days, does it? So, uh, oh yeah, I've, I've got to get to uh, the Paul Ryan stuff coming up here. Oh, we even uh, here re- real quick. Uh... Today, I am announcing that this year will be my last one as a member of the House. Uh, to be clear, I am not resigning. I intend to full my served term as I was elected. All right, to do. you get it. We're going to talk uh, about this coming up here. What does that mean, Paul Ryan? Not not going for for another round. We'll talk about it. Uh, I want to be clear. I'm not done yet. I intend to run through the tape to finish the year. Some of you wonder why I can't just do the normal politician thing, and which is to run and then retire after the election. That is what I'm told is the politically shrewd thing to do. Uh, I considered that. Uh, But just as my conscience is what got me to take this job in the first place, my conscience could not handle going out that way. I pledge to serve the people of Wisconsin, the first district, honorably. And in order to serve the people in my district honorably, I have to serve them honestly. And for me to ask them to vote to reelect me, knowing that I wasn't going to stay, is not being honest. So I simply cannot do that. So that's Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. You may have uh, caught this from earlier today, but we're going to jump into it together, my friends. Uh, Paul Ryan saying he's not going to run for re-election. Speaker of the House deciding just going to... Going to hit the $50,000, maybe $100,000. No more than that, though, because he's not Hillary Clinton selling access. But he's going to hit the $50,000 speech lecture circuit. Probably, uh, I'm guessing, either the chancellor of a right-leaning university or the uh, president of a major and very well-funded think tank. That's what's in Paul Ryan's future. With probably some board seats on some companies. He's going to be just fine. He, he's going to be lighting his cigars with $100 bills pretty soon here, I think. But... He's uh, he's leaving and people are asking a whole lot of questions. They're saying, hold on a second, the Speaker of the House, right? We got the whole Trump wave, the Trump agenda. You're going to leave now. You're, you're going to leave. You got a Republican president. You got a Republican House and Senate. You don't want to be a part of the second half of the first term of the Trump administration. I think that strikes some people as a little. Hmm. Now, I know there are a lot of people out there who are big Trump supporters who are overjoyed and and quite relieved at the notion that uh, Paul Ryan is not going to be running anymore. Look, I you know, I, I'll tell you this. I've heard from people who know who know uh, Congressman Ryan well. That he's, he's a very nice guy, a little uptight, but very nice guy. Uh, so I'm sure he's a good dude. And yeah, I, I can imagine that after a while, being away from your family the way that he has been, being a weekend only dad, if you had the option not to be, gets tiresome. I, I'm with all that. But it is public service. You are the Speaker of the House, right? You're you're not like Deputy Under Assistant Secretary's Assistant of Deputy Under at the Commerce Department, right? I mean, this is this is kind of a big deal. Sort of matters. And you get Paul Ryan now. You, so we we've heard the the reason, right? He's oh, I've got to be uh, I've got to be closer to my family and all that stuff. Okay, what do we really think is happening here? What are the other what are the unspoken reasons? And Trump has been very and in the press conference that I know Sarah Huckabee Sanders, very favorable towards uh, towards Speaker Ryan, very willing to, uh, you know, to say that he's a good guy and all that other stuff, which is which I've heard is true. Um, what else is going on here? Well, let's take a little look. Let's take a gander at what has happened and then we can get a better sense maybe of what might happen or what he thought would happen. 
and how that would affect the decision-making process here for Speaker of the House Paul Ryan. Here's what he said about his uh, accomplishments. When I took this job, one of my conditions was that we aim high, that we do big things, that we fashion an agenda, that we run on that agenda, that we win an election, and then we execute that agenda. I am so proud that that is exactly what we have done and what we are doing right now. We've accomplished so much since then. Probably the two biggest achievements for me are first, the major reform of our tax code for the first time in 36 years. Second is to rebuild our nation's military. And after tax reform addressing our military readiness crisis, that was a top priority that we got done last month as well. These I see as lasting victories that will make this country more prosperous and more secure for decades to come. Yeah, about that. A few things here. Uh, the, the tax cut, mostly so far still, right? People have gotten their bonus and stuff, but the tax cut's going to take a little while before we see what the full economic growth that comes from it is. But it's a good, but that's about as mainstream down the center GOP as you're going to get on anything. If the GOP has the House, the Senate, and the White House, and they don't pass a tax cut, uh, really, what are we doing here, folks? Right. So it's tough for me to get too excited about that. Yeah, it's good, but you kind of expect that, right? You know, if if you invite someone over to uh, to cook a meal in your house, you know, it, it's it's nice if they like pour you a glass of wine first. But you're also hoping there's going to be food, right? It's, it's not just there's going to be a little more to it than that first step. And I think that the tax cuts, while they're good, it's easy to say this is great. Uh, and then the whole thing about the military readiness crisis. Fuck, uh, how do you say this without people starting to yell at you? I, I do get the sense that uh, there, it's military spending for some folks is never enough. Whatever it is, not enough. There is a point at which it's more than we should be spending. Are we there? Are we close? We're probably close. But. Okay, Republicans also spend more in the military. Republicans are spending more in general. What did Paul Ryan not tackle, though? Let's let's get on that. Or, or what did the Republican Party? Because really, he's Speaker of the House, and he's supposed to be, you know, hand in glove with Trump on the Trump agenda. What did they not really get done? Well, I mean, as was making the rounds today, they passed Obamacare, repealing in place, didn't become law though. They uh, passed Kate Kate's law. And they went after sanctuary cities, but that's also still being adjudicated in the courts and didn't really do all that much. Uh, school choice for D.C., that's nice, but just D.C. Not a lot of monumental legislative achievements in this term or you know, in the last 18 months or so when you finally had unified Republican government. I think it's uh, getting a little bit, I think it's a little too simplistic for Paul Ryan to walk off and say, yeah, it's been great. I already hit a couple of homers. No, you got on base. You got on base a couple of times, which is nice, but that's not really why he's, you know, it's not like he's done enough that now it's all over and uh, everything's going to be fine. Let me get into some of the other things. Um, well, you know, here, fine. Before I get into the other side of this, the, the uh, more, and some of you who are not Paul Ryan, my problem with Paul Ryan is on immigration, he's terrible, folks. If you don't know this, he's awful. He's like, yeah, guess, like, let's just bring in the as many guest workers as humanly possible. Let them stay here, work here, 
take jobs because they're not going to just like stay and have kids and then get benefits. And no, 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 they're just going to come in, do work and leave. Right. I mean, the Chamber of Commerce was pulling the strings with Paul Ryan for a long time. Yeah, that's what was going on, whether it was directly through them or they just shared an ideology. Uh, and uh, you know, dollar was king for a lot of the decision making about immigration. That much I can tell you. Uh, but here's here's Newt. Another former speaker. I'll just I'll let him have his say about Ryan before I take the uh, slightly contrarian view here. For the Republicans, we've got lots of talent. I think either Scalise or McCarthy would be a very good speaker. Obviously, Paul is a unique person. He's a great policy person, but he's gotten deregulation. He has now gotten welfare reform with the president's statements this week. He helped pass the big tax cut he always wanted to help pass. Uh, I think from his perspective, he's gotten a lot of things done he believes in. I think we'll find somebody who will be a good speaker. Uh, And our job then will be to beat the Democrats and make sure we have a majority. Okay. You know, Newt was was being generous there, which you should be when someone's in. Now, keep in mind, it's not like he retired today or he's. He's still going to be Speaker of the House until until the fall um, or until early next year. But you'll notice there's a little bit of like, yeah, I mean, but he's ducking out. We got other great people. Don't worry. We got other great people. Why would Paul Ryan be ducking out? Here's here's one version. Ryan was going to be the guy who got blamed when I'm just going to say it. And this is not the happy talk moment. This is not we are all going to love this. No. Some of you may not like to hear this, but I, I I keep it real. I keep it 100 in the Freedom Hut. And I, if the Republicans lose the House, which is a possibility, my friends, could actually happen, uh, then you'd have a then he'd be in the minority. And a lot of a lot of those who think that the uh, Trump agenda has stalled, they're not going to blame Trump for that. They would blame Paul Ryan. They would blame the establishment. And there are no there are no better emblems of the of the Republican establishment than Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell. They are as establishment as it gets. Right. So I, I think Ryan is like, you know what? I'm going to get out while things are good. Uh, I and, and I'm sure all the stuff he said about the family is true. I don't think he was making any of that up or anything. But I just there's other things going on here, too, that we should pay attention to, not just because. You know, the Speaker of the House is going to be now his seat is up. By the way, I think only Paul Nalen, am I right about this, is, is set to run for because Nalen was going to run who from this just from the stuff I've seen on Twitter, that guy is crazy. Nalen was going to run um, against Ryan and without any support from the GOP from what I said at all. This guy's like, woo, he's way out there. Now they're going to put in another candidate. And I think they're actually going to mount a pretty serious Democrat uh, contender for that seat to make a statement against whoever the actual Republican, it's not going to be nailing, whoever the actual Republican is that they uh, that they put in there. But I think that Ryan realizes that, you know what, better to, remember when Michael Jordan like left and he was at the top of his, he was at the top of his game, right? And you're just like, Michael Jordan is basically, he was the sports equivalent of a superhero. In fact, he was even in a cartoon, a Saturday morning cartoon that I remember with Wayne Gretzky, Michael Jordan, you know what I'm talking about, and Bo Jackson, that's right, Brandon. Uh, what was it called, the All Stars or something? Or it was the All Stars? Yeah, where like they were. I didn't even were they fighting crime or something? I don't know. But you know, basketball, hockey stick, and Bo Jackson with a baseball bat, and they're just like being awesome. And Michael Jordan was basically a superhero. 
And then he decided to come back to the NBA after going to the and he was he was still a still a superhero. But then he started playing for the Wizards, and it was kind of like, oh, like he's you know as one does, he's getting older and everything. It's like he's not a superhero anymore. I'm not saying that Paul Ryan's a superhero. I'm just saying he doesn't want to be the guy who was at the kind of the top of the game and then all of a sudden is like coming off the bench in the fourth quarter for five minutes at a game that nobody cares about. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't want to be that guy. And I think this is his avoidance of that possibility that we see going. I think that's the primary reason that Paul Ryan decided, you know what? I'm going to get out of here because he doesn't want to be the establishment fall guy if the midterms go badly. And you know what? I think that would have happened if they had. So that's my that's my assessment of it. And all of you who are like, boo, Paul Ryan. I know, I know, I get it, I get it. He's a nice guy, but I get it. Terrible on immigration, as I said. I mean, it's among the worst Republicans on it. I mean, he's like, he's almost like fundamentalist, open borders, libertarian bad on immigration. Because there's some fundamentalist libertarians on immigration who are just wacko. Um, anyway, so that's my Paul, those are my Paul Ryan thoughts. We'll be right back. With all of this turmoil, particularly this last week, has the president at any time thought about stepping down before or now? Uh, no, and I think that's an absolutely ridiculous no, question. So that's uh, April Ryan, uh, who is with NPR. Who's April Ryan with? I think she's with. Uh, let me see here. Uh, let me check as I'm as I'm on on air. I need to make sure. April Ryan is with, uh, who is she with? I don't even know. She's a journalist, well-known. I'm just forgetting who exactly she, uh, whatever, doesn't matter. Okay, so she's a journalist for one of the big outlets. And uh, and she asked at a press conference, is the president thinking about stepping down? Which uh, I can tell you the answer is uh, no. The president's not thinking about stepping down. And I, I do think that there's a point at which the the questions from the media, it's fair to ask, like, is this just blatantly disrespectful? You know, has this crossed over from asking tough questions to asking questions that are the equivalent of, you know, when did you stop beating your wife? I mean, that's a question, but it's not something that posed in the West Wing of the White House you would expect, right? That, that, or that you would accept, I would think. Uh, but it is indicative, I think, of the Trump derangement syndrome in its total reach, that the uh, the Overton window, you know, the Overton window is what is considered acceptable to discuss, what the realm of acceptable discussion is at any point in time. The Overton window on Trump is uh, is constantly shifting, and, and it's always shifting negatively against Trump, though, right? So sometimes you can get away with a whole lot more Trump bashing in certain areas, but you can always essentially bash Trump all in, all the time. And that's what you saw there. Now, I would note that uh, Ryan has gotten a lot of, of uh, pushback from this and, and even some worse stuff, too. The reason why I asked the question was not about Democrat or Republican. It was not a partisan thing. It was a reporter asking the question. But people have gone into their tribes, and some are saying it was a great question, mostly um, people who do not support this president. And those who are supporting this president are outraged, are angry. I've been getting death threats, and we've been calling the FBI. Now, you know, I, got a, I got a couple things to say on this, all right? First of all, anyone who ever threatens any journalist over what they say or their question is, is an imbecile and, and, and should be reported to the authorities. But you, you don't make death threats against people, period. Right? So I don't need to say that, but I just... 
You know, in case Media Matters is listening, let me say that. But then I also want to say this. Uh, I don't know many people who work in media who haven't gotten terrible threats. I've gotten terrible threats. All my friends have gotten terrible. Death threats, threats of violence. I mean, really, really bad stuff. I know plenty of people in media who have had threats against their families as well. I mean, don't even get me started. I used to work, I was a colleague of Dana Lash's at The Blaze. What do you think that was like for Dana? Uh, and, and, and I could talk about a whole bunch of other people in the same category of, uh, of, of threats. And, and I just think, I think it's a little, you know, uh, it's a little bit like, oh, I'm getting threats now. Look, she asked a very, it was a very dumb question. It was a very dumb question. Um, that doesn't make her a bad person. It doesn't mean that anyone should be mean to her, but it's a dumb question. Uh, I think it's indicative of the press corps uh, lack of, a, of um, you know, underpinnings, lack of a, a framework for what is reasonable and rational with Trump. Right. So that's no one ever would have asked Obama that question or or Bush that question before him, no matter what we're talking about, no matter what period. Um, but also you always got to be a little when journalists start to do the whole, oh, you know, I've been getting death threats. Death threats are terrible. Nobody should get them. But we all we all get death threats. OK, so in this day of Twitter and Facebook, I can't even tell, you know, oh, my gosh, the stuff that's out there that if you're going to be in the public eye, you deal with. So that that part of it, I felt a little bit like, yeah, a report of the FBI, but it's not really germane to the discussion of why would you ask the president that? And the answer is because the press believes that that's a legitimate question, which tells us a lot more about the press than it does about the president. I want to talk to you about uh, parenting, schools, and elitism, and also mini-bats. Amazing lineup coming up for the next hour. Stay with me. Now, I am not a parent, so I have no expertise in this matter. But I do like to pretend to know about these things. Maybe because I had very good parents. um, Also just because I find the whole... The battles over parenting are fascinating to analyze as an outsider. So so maybe in a sense, even though I have no firsthand experience, I'm an objective observer of how people parent their kids. Like, for example, today, I may have in my losing battle against dad bod gone to the gym. And there was a woman there who this is not good. No, no, it's not like that kind of a story. It's not like, hey. I haven't seen you at the gym in a while. No, no, it's not. It's not a fun gym story like that. She was, a, you know, a, a, clearly a mom with her baby. And uh, I will say that I could tell from hearing her speak that she was also foreign, but irrelevant from where. But mom with a baby and a foreign accent and brings the baby into a gym where people are doing like kettlebell swings and lifting barbells with serious weight on them. You know, a gym gym. And this woman who just decided to, I don't know why, she wanted in, and she's like putting the baby on the treadmill. I mean, a baby, like a toddler. Well, maybe that's not a baby, but, you know, two years old, like has unsteady legs and needs to be kind of held. Puts her on the treadmill, like, and I'm sitting there watching this. I'm like, whoa. I mean, technically, there's an 18 and over policy for the gym that I happen to be in. And the, 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 the mom comes over, and she's turning on the, oh, baby on the treadmill. She's holding I'm like, no, no, treadmill, not a toy. No, no, this is not, and I... But I will tell you, I was held back because I'm like, you know what? It's not my place. It's not my baby. I'm not a parent. You know, people will say I'm being curmudgeonly, which is always a, a daily struggle for me. So I'm just going to let it go. And sure, after a little while, you know, she, she scurried out of there and everything was fine. The baby was fine. But I remember thinking to myself, like, 
this is not smart, right? Like this is, dare I say, even as a non-parent, it is bad parenting to bring your tiny toddler into a gym environment, let the tiny toddler walk around when people are swinging, literally swinging heavy weights. Like, I just think that's a bad move, right? I think so. And I think we could all agree on that. But people get very sensitive about criticism of parents, particularly criticism of parents from people entrusted with the children of other parents like teachers, for example. And that's why this particular post, I guess this is continuing. You know, I like to talk about education on the show, uh, higher education, college stuff, affirmative action, college admissions. Well, here I'm talking to you about like kids that do finger painting and stuff like that. Those kinds of kids and their teachers in Bastrop, Texas, which I'll admit I'd never heard of before today. Are you gentlemen familiar with Bastrop? It's lovely this time of year. You know, you know what a good thing about Texas is? Just be like, they're really into their football there. And you know what? Even if it's not true, you haven't offended anybody. And there's like a 90% chance they're like, damn right. <laughs> See, I learned the tricks. I know things. So in Bastrop, Texas, there's a teacher. Oh, it's a it's suburban Dallas. Okay, so it's a suburb of Dallas. I thought it was its own town. That doesn't count. That's like a neighborhood. Um, she expressed her frustration and, it, and this has been shared more than 400,000 times on Facebook. So this has gone viral. This is a teacher named Julie, Julie Marburger. She writes, I left work early today after an incident with a parent left me unable emotionally to continue for the day. I've already made the decision to leave teaching at the end of this year. And today, I don't know if I will even make it that long. Parents have become far too disrespectful and their children are even worse Administration always seems to err on the side of keeping the parent happy, which leaves me with no way to do the job I was hired to do, teach kids. I am including photos that I took in my classroom over the past two days. This is how my classroom regularly looks after students spend the day there. Keep in mind that many of the items damaged or destroyed by my students are my personal possessions, or I purchased myself because I have no classroom budget. Uh... Report, she goes, by the way, this goes on at length, so I won't read the whole thing. Report cards come out later this week, and I'm nearly half of my students failing due to multiple missing assignments. I guess these aren't, I guess they're not doing finger painting. Whoops. Wait a second. How old are these kids? Because the classroom is trashed. I got to find out how old they are. I assumed based on, because I looked at the photos, and it, it looks like a pack of wild animals are running around in there. And I'm trying to see, uh, I guess they're they're got to be old enough to have homework, which means that they're not toddlers. They're not finger painting level. Um, although I know there's some colleges now where I think you can major in finger painting. I've never heard of a profession, back to her viral post here, where people put so much of their heart and soul into their job. Okay, yeah, teachers are amazing. Right, I get it. We all agree. Fine. Um, it has been a dream of mine for as long as I can remember to have a classroom of my own. People absolutely, here's where we go. Here's back into the parenting stuff. Absolutely have to stop coddling and enabling their children. It's a problem that's going to spread through our society like wildfire. It's not fair to society, and more importantly, it's not fair to the, teacher, uh, to the children to teach them it's okay. It will not serve them towards a successful and happy life. All right, now I'm going to tell you this. For, as an out, from an outsider's perspective, as a non-parent, hoping to be a parent in the next couple of years, but as a non-parent, I feel like kids are brattier now. I feel like, right? I mean, uh, uh, Brandon and Michael look at me. They're like, absolutely. Kids are brattier now. They just are. Something has changed in our society. You know, things do change. It used to, you know, you 
technology changes, social mores change. Things do change over time. And, you know, when I'm in restaurants now, it has become, that's right, there's a little bit of get off my lawn coming your way here. When I'm in restaurants now, it is, it is now almost normal for a kid to be kept quiet with an iPad that they have the volume on at a at a restaurant at a place of of relaxation and culinary enjoyment, right? I don't care if it's Le Cirque or if it's Le Wendy's. Kids should be able to sit there, enjoy their food, and if they're not old enough to engage in conversation, at least be quiet. I'm okay with the I got a little coloring book or something because that doesn't bother me, right? I'm not I, I'm not a monster. Right? I'm not the, the demon from Frankenstein. I mean, I, I understand. But you can't have the noises. You can't have an iPad playing a movie. Oh, SpongeBob SquarePants. Blah, blah. I'm like, I'm, I'm on a date over here, kid, you know? I know you're five or, in some cases, 15. I mean, some of these kids, no rules, no manners whatsoever. It's just too much. And I think it starts very young. And I think it's because there's a culture now of, you know, you do you when it comes to parenting. No. No, there are the grumpy... Single people out there like me who are not parents who I think have a duty. I think we have an obligation when parenting is not is not up to uh, up to par in in the public square to say, you know what? Take a, you know, little little Fauntleroy over here. You know, <laughs> they, by the way, they all they've all got uh, they're all named like Casper now. You know, they all have these like these literary names. Yeah, it's just, you know, Bartholomew Casper. You know, it's like, you know what? Whatever happened to like Mike and and Brandon and John and Tom? You know, now all these kids have these names. It sounds like they pulled them out of a Harry Potter book, which they probably did, now that I'm saying it out loud. That that's probably how they got the name. But I think it would be better if we just all understood that it's a it, it it is everyone's business when a kid is misbehaving in public. And to those of you who have really well behaved kids, which I know is a vast majority, it's ninety ninety nine percent of the people who listen to this show have very well behaved kids, those who are parents. Congrats and thank you for what you are doing because you're really contributing to civilization and you're really keeping the torch of civilization going by having kids that don't act like little screaming monsters who think that they can throw their French fries across the room and yell and, you know, the whole thing. You know, I remember I remember even when I was I was walking uh, Miss Molly's family dog, which is basically a pit bull. And, like, a, a parent came over and was like, is it friendly? And I was like, nah, I, I wouldn't. And, like, the kids were just like, we're going in anyway. I was like, guys, it's not going to end well, okay? I tell you the dog is not, you know, great with adults, but it's had experiences with kids who come in like, poke you in the eyeballs. Like, that's not good. Dogs don't like that, right? Some dogs know. They see somebody who's sub three foot five, and they're like, back off. Because they know. You're over, you know, you're over five feet or so. You you, they, the dog knows you're going to, they see the little people come over who are like eight, six, four, something like that. You know, they get a little growl and the parents go, oh, and I'm like, I told you, don't bring the kids too close to the <sighs> stuff I deal with. Right. You know, it's just, I'm going to bring it back down to center. I'm going to bring it back down to neutral. Cool the jets for a second here. Um, and uh, we're going <laughs> to, I'm sorry. The kid in the gym today was just too much. I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And so I'm with this teacher who's freaking out. And, you know, is she a drama queen? I don't know. I don't know her personally. But I like her post where she's just like, people spoil their kids. Don't spoil your kids. That's the, you know, and this is a this is a group effort, folks. 
Dare I say, it takes a village. Like, Hillary! That's, remember she wrote that book a long time ago, It Takes a Village. It takes a village to keep your kids from acting like little monsters. All right, we'll be back. Stay with me. I want to take on school elitism here for a second. I mean at the college and, and graduate level. So there's a, a story out there about Michael Cohen. Who? Who's polls? Your polls? Who's polls? That guy. Because his office got raided by the FBI, and I think this whole thing is an absolute sham. I think it's a disgrace. And those who listen to the show know I am very, very fired up about it. But people have been poking around more uh, to find out more about this Cohen fellow. And Red State, uh, which is a site um, that is owned, I believe, or was, I think it was owned by Eric Erickson, whom I, I know from, from work stuff. Uh, Red State had a piece up that Trump lawyer Michael Cohen got his law degree from literally the worst law school in the country, or the worst law school in the country is what was written here. And now... I understand that people are going to look at this. There's a little bit of a ha-ha because he didn't get it from not a fancy school. They're not saying he didn't go to Harvard or Yale or U Michigan. There's some state schools that are phenomenal law schools, right? But no, no, no. This is apparently the worst of the worst in terms of accredited law schools. Uh, and we're supposed to take from this. There's a little bit of just, uh, you know, isn't this kind of funny? The president's top lawyer is not exactly an intellectual uh, heavyweight. Um, but but I, I wanted to push back on this a little bit, and, and I'm getting actually a little help uh, to that degree, because I say this all the time. I came from a background where I went to a, a high school on a full scholarship. It's called Regis High School here in New York City, and it's a really amazing place. Everyone goes for free. It's a completely private school. Everyone goes for free. They have their own test, standardized test that they administer. It's their test. Uh, and then they have an interview portion as well. Um, and and they just make their own decisions. It's run by an endowment and by people who give money, who went there. That's it. Doesn't get any other funding. And it's a really interesting place in a lot of ways. But one of the things that I, I saw there and came to know is that unlike some of the uh, New York kids that I grew up around who had parents who went to fancy schools, because legacy is a very big thing even still, especially at these Ivy League schools and equivalents. Uh, but a lot of the kids that I knew were just a lot of my friends, my classmates, most of them, almost all of them in high school were middle to what you'd call working class, uh, middle to working class in terms of uh, their their household income and all that. And they were brilliant kids and they were really hardworking and they would go wherever they could get the most money to go. So I knew kids who were like in, in, on the same level as someone who could go to a. Uh, I don't know, a Swarthmore or a Cornell, which, as we know, is like the fake Ivy, but that's a whole other discussion. Uh, that's right, Cornell people, at me. Come at me. Uh, but, you know, we could have gone to a, a schools of those caliber in terms of the admissions rate, but they went to a uh, state school instead. Or they went to a, a Catholic university where they, where they could get more money, where they had more tuition help. So it was a financial decision. But they're every bit as smart and capable, and I think you could argue a lot of them probably got better educations at the uh, state schools they went to than they would have if they had paid $40,000, $45,000 a year to go to school. So I had that experience of seeing, because I knew who in my class was really smart and who was kind of just eh, and some of the super smart kids went to the not the fanciest schools. Some kids who went to the schools you'd be so impressed with weren't really that impressive, but they were like the world's best tuba player or something. 
fun fact, my college roommate my first year was actually a tuba player, which uh, that's that's something that you got to live with. So this pushback on Michael Cohen as a lawyer, look, I'm, I'm not some big Cohen defender, but I saw something really interesting from a Twitter account, Thomas Crown. He's a lawyer. I don't know his background. Don't know the guy. Just follow him on Twitter. And here's here's the uh, the thread that he wrote on Twitter about this. And I think this is important. I think it's applicable way beyond uh, just the case of Michael Cohen right? I, I, or law school. I think this is applicable in general. I think everyone should know this. Uh, he writes, as Rumpfshaker, Sarah Rumpf, who wrote the piece on, on uh, Michael Cohen, notes Thomas Cooley, that's the law school, is considered the worst of the worst. Uh, with honor, sir, and it has been for decades. It accepts almost everyone. It has an 86% acceptance rate, which for a law school is basically everyone. I mean, if you're not a convicted felon, you can pretty much go. It means entry scores are miserable. All the indicators of success in the practice of law are not required to enter. This is all from Thomas Crown now. Quote, law students and lawyers from other schools tend to mock it, and rightly so. For a few years, I litigated against a guy who graduated toward the bottom of his class there. Uh, He failed multiple times. Uh, And then he says he was unique. But Thomas Cooley has or had, when I cared to look, a brutal failure and dropout rate. This is largely driven by the skills and so much else brought by those who get in there. But it's driven by other things, too. And one of them is or was an academically brutal environment. Unlike many of the uh, many, if not most top tier law schools, exams are not open book. There is no curve at Thomas Cooley, and the school knows it churns and burns students. If you got an A in real property in my law school, this guy went to a fancy one, you had a working grasp of a lot of theory and a well-marked-up book. Uh, If you got an A in real property at Thomas Cooley, you not merely knew the rule against perpetuities, you could not merely apply it, you could generate a law school question about it and write the rubric for it. A friend was top of his class at the end of his first year law school and promptly transferred to a top 25 where he finished at the top of his class from Thomas Cooley because he said, this is so much easier. Uh, He said, and then he goes on, an old lawyer, a sometimes mentor who passed away a decade ago, used to give all the polished, bright things at AM Law 100 firms headaches with this joke. What's the difference between a trial lawyer and a litigator? A trial lawyer tries cases. A litigator has so much paper he can't get it up into the courtroom, so he has to settle on the courthouse steps. Point here is at the top of their class, kids at Thomas Cooley are scrappers. They tend to be harder on exits from school, not as polished, but much, much more compelling on their feet in a courtroom. What this guy's saying is that the crucible, my friends, matters. Skills matter. Grit, determination, that all matters a heck of a lot for professional success. And yes, it matters in your academic environment, too. We have been put up, we've been put in this culture where all the obsession, the obsession with degrees and the fancy school and, oh, did you get into this school, did you get into that school, where did you go to school? It's, I think we're finally moving away from it as we should. Some of, and I mean this, and I, I, am, I am not in any way trying to, you know, play, play along here, play a game. Some of the smartest people I have ever worked with uh, in media never graduated from college or even went to college. And some, I mean, I worked for Glenn Beck. Glenn never went to college. Guys, you know, 
practically was his own country for a while in terms of you know his influence and how much money he's making and everything else. I mean, Glenn's great, right? Never went to college. I go down a whole list of people I know. Never went to college and incredibly successful. And then I look at other people I know, people I worked with uh, in, in government, some of the smartest analysts I, ca- I came across. State school. But you know what? They had to make it in state school. They had to study hard. They had to get the grades. They couldn't just rely on mumsy and daddy to make it all happen for them. So I just don't, you know, I know, I know we're, everyone's having a laugh at Cohen going to a crappy law school, but don't forget it that the school doesn't matter. You matter and what you do there and what you learn. That's what really makes the difference. All right, we'll be right back, team. Stay with me. Look, I'm all in favor of enabling people to defend themselves, obviously. I'm a big advocate of and defender of the Second Amendment, and I just believe that that we all have an inherent right to self-defense and that the government should never just take that away from us because it feels like it or on some kind of whim. But there are some things that are just not going to cut it. There are some things that just aren't aren't going to make it uh, worth, worth your while to try. We've seen recently when people have been talking about ways that we can uh, have teachers prepared to defend their students. You had a few weeks ago buckets of rocks distributed, right? Which, you know, you're you're counting on a lot there, first of all. Uh, Somebody having good aim with the rock that they're throwing, a good arm, and, and also being able to get to those rocks. I mean, unless you've got Nolan Ryan in his heyday as a teacher, I don't think the bucket of rocks option is all that uh, useful a way to go. I think that's pretty clear, right? In fact, I think there's a whole bunch of things you could think of that would be much more effective than a, a bucket of rocks. But that's not even the dumbest. We, should, we could almost give out awards for this. That's not the dumbest idea a school district has had, um, short of doing drills where they have the teacher throw their stapler. I mean, you could do that, right? Stapler. It's mine. Swing line. Stapler. Only some people will catch that reference, but you know what? The people who do, they're the real heroes. They're the real heroes. My stapler. You took my stapler. Yeah, I'm going to have to. Anyway, some people will catch it, and those are my those are my brothers and sisters for life, and the rest of you who don't catch it, you are also my brothers and sisters for life. Uh, but the worst idea of all, I think, I think this is worse than rocks. Mini baseball bats. They're giving out mini baseball bats to teachers in Mill Creek Township in Pennsylvania. And, and they actually, Fox News actually got the, the superintendent to go out. It's like, well, it's a last resort and uh, it's a dangerous world we live in. But uh, sure enough, it's like, OK, can we break this down? There are several levels of wow here. Uh, first of all. The thing that strikes me is not is not just that this is idiotic, but also there's a specific idiocy with why not just a baseball bat? Why a mini baseball bat? And when I thought about this, because by the way, who has a do you have a mini baseball bat? Well, actually, you're like a Phillies fan, probably. So you probably have a collection of them. You and your Phillies friend weirdos probably have like a whole room with just mini Phillies bats. And with the Flyers, you probably got those like sticks from the Flyers. That's what they call it, right? A hockey stick. I never watch hockey. I've learned my lesson, though. I don't talk smack about hockey on radio. I've gotten... Cause first in of Philly, all, we have the real big baseball bats and the real big hockey sticks. There you go. We don't do many. Yeah, they don't do many in Philly. They don't go many in Philly. What do, what do they think this is? It's crazy, right? Gosh. They're not... Uh, they, do many, they do many baseball bats in, like, Quebec. You know, that's something else. That's some foreign stuff. 
So in Philly, they get the full bat. Plus, they also put some nails into it, and you know, they they spruce it up a little bit. That's a whole other discussion. But they don't even go with real baseball bats. They think it's a better idea to arm teachers with mini baseball bats, which unless they're going to do a special training where they get like one bat in each hand, and then it kind of turns into the, uh, what is it, the Filipino stick fighting, I believe. It's called Kali. I watched a lot of martial arts movies in my day. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You guys have no, you don't even know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's Filipino martial arts, two sticks at the same time. It's actually pretty cool when you see people doing it. I'm going to get an email from somebody, guaranteed. guaranteed. Any martial art that I give a call out to on this show, as long as I've been doing this show, someone's like, well, like, I'm a, I'm a ninth degree black belt in Savat, the French art of kickboxing that combines ballet leg moves with Western style boxing. It's a real thing. They've even made a couple of bad martial arts movies about it, which is why I know about it, because I saw there's a whole other there's a whole other genre, folks, we'll have to explore together, which is. 80s, circa early 90s, but really 80s action movies. Like, if you want to talk about Jeff Speakman and The Perfect Weapon, I've seen that movie many times. <laughs> like, that was when all of a sudden all these Kenpo karate schools are opening up. It's like, it's not just karate, it's Kenpo karate. It's like, oh, well, in that case, the spin kick is going to work. Anyway, mini bats, not, not a good, uh, not an effective tactic, not an effective technique. Uh, but I, I, this is the funniest thing is they're not even giving them full bats. I mean, a bat, yeah, that'll work. I mean, you got to get really close to somebody, but at least a bat, you got a shot. A mini bat, it's like, ding, stop it. A mini bat is for when somebody's like being naughty in detention. All right, we got roll call coming up. Stay with me. What the heck happened with Conor McGregor, by the way? I, I saw the headline a few days ago, and and now today I actually was like, you know what? What did this guy do? I figured that it must be some kind of UFC stunt. But no, he actually just like freaked out and threw a metal trolley or do- dolly. A trolley would be really hard. That would be the Hulk to do that, right? Because that's a large, it's like a train car. A dolly is what you carry luggage in. He threw a metal dolly through the window of a van. Actually hurt some people. Uh, injured a UFC fighter. Brand, did he, was the guy able to fight the next day or not? He was not. Oh, you don't know. Okay, we're not sure. I should have found that out before I went on air. But whatever. The point is, guys obviously got a bit of a bit of a screw loose. And on top of that, he does remind me the most, though, of the Brad Pitt character from Snatch. It's almost like that character was made real with Conor McGregor. You know, I fight you fire. You know, like, and you don't really understand what he's saying. I thought they made all that stuff up for the movie Snatch. By the way, where he's got this weird like Irish. Uh, uh, what do they call it? The traveler used to be called gypsy. They don't like that Irish traveler language. Uh, when in fact, that is what they sound. They, they do sound like that. I've since seen documentaries where they speak that way. And, and underground boxing is a big thing for them. Conor McGregor, though, not exactly doing underground boxing because I think he's worth like a hundred million dollars now after his rather disappointing fight with uh, Floyd Mayweather. Uh, so I, I just was surprised. I watched a video today. I was like, what is this guy doing? Why, why do that? That doesn't make sense. I remember many years ago, I knew, I knew a guy who knew a guy who got a little mouthy in a bar with someone, and there was some kind of a scrap, and he uh, hit, I wasn't there, but as the story was told me, he hit somebody in the side of the head with a Heineken bottle, and actually the bottle partially uh, shattered, and a piece of glass got in the guy's eye that he hit 
He went to Rikers Island for 18 months for that, which is a very notorious prison here in New York City. So anytime you're because because that's the the dolly got thrown through the window and the glass shattered and actually hit this cut up this uh, UFC fighter who was sitting there. Anytime you're uh, assaulting someone and there's broken glass involved. Very, very bad idea. Also, just a bad idea to assault people. Important safety tip. With that, let's get into some roll call. Hey. Team Buck, it's time for roll call. <laughs> I feel like we could all go to a swing party right now. Swing, swing dancing, isn't that what the, right? What was Zoot Suit Riot? That was a thing. Brandon, you were DJ, so you know about these guys. They Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. But also, what what was the one, were they the big, uh, who was, remember for a while, like swing dancing, the movie Swingers, they had swing dancing. There was one band. Was it was that the one? That was really popular for like six months in a, it was them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. Yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, everybody was wearing, uh, you know, wearing the fedoras and zoot suits and they were, zoot suit riot. That's right. That's right. So anyway. Yeah, man, we could bring it back. Yeah. Groovy tunes. Listen to my groovy tunes, man. Uh, All right. Into the Facebook box here. Uh, Speaking of important things, a terrible transition, Buck, but it's late in the show. Uh, oh, I want to get to the emails first. I would I would like to note that if you want to be a part of Roll Call, all you have to do is send us an email, and you can do so uh, rather easily by writing to officialteambuck at gmail.com. That is officialteambuck at gmail.com. Next up here, or first up here, rather, we have uh, Rain. Cool name. Who writes... Hi, Buck. I love the show, and I tell everyone to check it out at iHeart Live or via your podcast on iTunes. Well, thank you, Rain. You're very kind, and that is very much appreciated. You mentioned you just finished Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and you were wondering why the creature is always depicted as a mumbling monster in the movies. That you picture him reciting Shakespeare and holding conversations, and a show that depicted the monster beautifully where he recited the great works and poetry appreciated art and beauty and engaged in conversation is Penny Dreadful. The actor truly brings such depth and emotion to what has previously been a flat role. Shields high, Rain. Uh, well, Rain, let me say, uh, yes, I agree. I saw uh, that Penny Dreadful, and I thought it was excellent. And uh, also, although the last season, it kind of got off the rails. Uh, but I, I do remember the character of the Frankenstein monster, the demon, as Dr. Frankenstein calls him, uh, is very eloquent and thoughtful and interesting and not, you know, that's right. I mean, Brandon, when you think of Frankenstein, it's a lot of like, and he moves kind of slow and he's got the bolts in the neck. And that's just a somehow what is some people consider Mary Shelley's Frankenstein one of the greatest novels of all time. I'm not in that category, but I have read that on those lists on the Internet. Uh, But what was a, a novel with with really uh, beautiful writing, and it was early on in what would become the sci-fi genre, uh, got, you know, basically they made a bad movie adaptation of it. This would be like saying uh, you should go read uh, the book. I'm trying to think of bad. What is what is the worst adaptation of a book that you liked into a movie? I like the book Bonfire of the Vanities because it captured a certain period here in New York City. They made a movie with Tom Hanks and Melanie Griffith that is unwatchable garbage. From a best-selling book, they made an unwatchably garbage 
movie. I'm sure if we thought about this, we could come up with a, uh, a, a whole number of... This is not an unusual thing to happen, but maybe I'll come up with a... If you have any, go- if you have any great ones, and by that I mean terrible ones, times when the, the movie uh, did not live up to the, the book at all, you can send that to me on Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Oh, Buck Sexton's doing the roll call. I like that other people start calling Dershowitz the Dersh, by the way. I've seen that in my inbox a few times now. I'm like, the Dersh! Hey, yeah, you're in a scrape. You're in a scrap. You need a little help, you know? The the fuzz is coming after you. The 5-0? Call the Dersh. Call the... He, he sounds like he'd have, like, uh, billboards, you know, by the highway. You know? Accident? Whiplash? Call the Dersh. I'm sure Professor Dershowitz, tenured professor of law at Harvard, would not, uh, not, not approve of such billboards, but nonetheless... Uh, back into uh, the email box, officialteambuck at gmail.com if you want to send it to us. Uh, Buck, you are exactly correct on bans. For all those who think that crazy people should be forbidden guns, remember, in the Soviet Union, if you disagreed with the government, you were considered crazy. Only a crazy person would not see the value of the commune. Nuts is in the definition, not in the head or the heart. Chuck. From Grand Rapids. Uh, well, Chuck, uh, I I agree, good sir, that bans uh, tend not to work the way they are advertised to work. So uh, I am with you on that, hundred percent. And uh, I think that I think that anytime people think they're going to solve a problem by just outlawing it, they have to think a lot harder about what the real implications will be. Um, next up, we've got John who writes, "Hey, Buck." Big fan of your show, especially the wit and sense of humor. Well, thank you, my good man, uh, that you combine so well with your expertise on history, geopolitics, national security, culture, and the mess that is our current government. It is great listening. Well, you, sir, have fantastic taste. I'm also finished with a manuscript called Joe Citizen's Letter to Speaker Boehner, which gives a Joe Citizen's take on all the liberal insanity and the refusal of the Republican leaders to do anything about it. Being from Los Angeles... I get the overload of leftist utopianism every single day, and it burns me that the so-called conservative leaders don't do enough to fight this plague. We are seeing now California sets the trends, however insane, and the rest of the blue states follow. But I dig deep into all the real nuttiness that goes on in California, and it's even worse than whatever you might read about. This is an excerpt. Oh, he sent me an excerpt. Okay, well, I can't read the whole excerpt on there because it's long. But thank you, John, for sending me this. I appreciate it. And uh, let's get, whoops, I just I just lost my inbox. He lost it. Bueller, Bueller. Oh, I'm finding it. I'm finding it. Give me one second. Where did it go? One more here. This one from Cindy. She writes, I'm with you about cruise ships. Well, of course, Cindy, you're also a person of exquisite taste, and understand that cruise ships are generally not a good idea. Uh, In my opinion, look, it's an opinion thing. Some people like picnics. I say, why do you want to eat on the ground and not have access to refrigeration? You know, I'm not not down with picnics for whatever reason. I think they're very overrated, right? You carry all your food. What happens if you forgot? Oh, you forgot the mayo? Tough. No mayo for you. You're on a picnic. You walked all the way out in the middle of that field, right? Not a picnic person, not a cruise ship person. You're not a tent person either, are you? What, you mean like sleep in a tent? Oh, I grew up doing camping. Don't even get me started on camping. Makes makes no sense to me. Makes none. Glamping, I'm all about. And yeah, you could say this is frou-frou buck coming out, but I don't care. 
glamping I can get, right? You go out, staying in a cabin, log cabin in the woods. I love nature. I just don't like the feeling of waking up after sleeping on the ground and having had like a rock in the center of my back because, you know, that's just nature, man. I don't like that part of it. So I'm, no, that does not excite me. By the way, last night I, I was actually hanging out with Miss Molly and sitting on the couch and all of a sudden my knee just started to hurt for no reason. And out of nowhere, I'm just like, ah, my knee hurts. And we just looked at each other at the same time. And I was like, oh, man, I need, to not, I need to not let that just become a thing. My knee hurts. My back hurts. I've fallen and my knee is killing me. All right. Um, Cindy wrote that about cruise ships. Uh, she goes into some more detail. She writes, as a conservative, it may seem backwards to me. But we need the government, this government, to investigate Twitter, Facebook, and Google about their algorithms and censorship and enact legislation to stop it. Cindy, I appreciate the sentiment, but I got to tell you, I think that almost always the government is going to make the, the government's going to make the problem worse. You can think it's going to be better, but they're really going to make it worse. That's my opinion. So we will see. And uh, you said thank you for all you do. Thank you, Cindy, for writing me this kind note. I greatly appreciate it. So that's going to be it from the Freedom Hut archives of a roll call today. Thank you so much for hanging out, for being with me here in the hut. All kinds of exciting programs, plans, fiestas. We got things coming up. So I'll, I'll bring you up to speed on them in good time. In the meantime, you are the evangelists for this show. You are the people I count on. Please tell your friends. Please spread the word. Say, download this guy's podcast. It's on iTunes, The Buck Sexton Show. With that, we close up. Shields high.